This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Tom Philpot is a veteran journalist, former farmer, and the current food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones. He's also the author of a brand new book called Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. It's a thoroughly researched tale of how American agriculture went wrong, as well as a smart, hopeful roadmap for avoiding the ultimate disaster. I loved hearing Tom's stories of farmers and communities who are paving the way, and I think you'll enjoy learning about how you can join the cause, too. That's another thing hanging over the food system in California is it isn't just a specter of drought that is coming for the Central Valley. It is also the specter of a massive biblical-style flood. Let's get to my conversation with Tom Philpot. Congrats on your book, your first book. Hard to publish during a pandemic, but I think people are, if ever, a captive audience, particularly as we think about ways to rebuild all of our systems. So maybe the timing is perfect, in fact. I've thought about that too. It's a book that... It isn't about a, flip, a, a frivolous topic that's going to seem frivolous very soon or already feels frivolous. So I do feel like as we move out of this crazy pandemic, if we are able to, then the message of this book is going to be really important. Yeah. And one of the debates we do in my team, we have scientists scattered throughout the company, but two of them sit within the content org. And we do our sort of by we meet twice a week collectively on zoom just to chat and really all we ever want to talk about is COVID and one of the questions that I have every single time is when will we know or will we ever know 
whether the U.S. is, and, and granted, I get that this is a complicated question, but whether the U.S. is being so specifically ravaged because we're being idiots about masks, or is it because we're so vulnerable and we have such a failing food system that has left us sick and ill and full of comorbidities or is it the perfect storm of all of those things? Like, I, I wonder if when we retroactively look back, how much of it will be able to peg on the fact that we are eating, as you say, I can't remember the exact calorie breakdown, but we're eating such a massive amount of sort of soybean and corn derived products. It's like, what, 40% of our calories, including the animal products that they support? Yeah, I think there is probably something there because we knew going into this pandemic that we had really high levels of basically diet-related diseases, things like type 2 diabetes, heart conditions. And these are all the kind of conditions that you don't want to have going into something that attacks your body like COVID-19. I mean, I think there, there probably isn't very much question at all that our lack of good public health heading into this has made us a lot more vulnerable. And that's part of what sets us apart from other industrialized countries and just our such a dismal performance during this. Yeah. And let's we can get into sort of the specific food system in the US and the book obviously focuses on California and Iowa and the complicating factors in each area geographically and all of those other factors. But I think that the bigger question, and I think the bigger overlying thesis of the book seems to be, and it's something that we think about and talk about all the time, and I know that the people who read Goop are equally concerned, is that we have, we're destroying our diversity in our own guts, in our environment, in the bird population, in the in the way that we farm and we've become completely monocrop culture in a way that's reflected up and down spiritually down to the nano biome. And we're, our food supply is essentially controlled by the three big players that you outline in the book. And that is terrifying, understandably, and with, with unknown health implications in terms of the load of pesticides that's being literally rained on us. So... Yeah. Where do you um, want to start? <laughs> I think that is a really good place to start because I think, you know, a publication organization like Goop is really concerned with diet. And I think it's pretty intuitive that one of the principles of a good diet is to have a lot of diversity, to eat a lot of different things that bring a lot of different nutrients and things like that. And I, I think that the argument that I'm making in my book is that just as we've done that with our diets, just as we've really narrowed down and as a society, we have a very narrow diet, we, it's not surprising that we've done, done the same thing in agriculture, that our agriculture has gone from pretty good complexity, lots and lots of different things growing out in fields, to in these two crucial areas that I talk about in the book, this real narrowing of crop diversity, this real separation of corn and soybean and general grain production from animal production, the two have become completely separated. 
And I think that there is an analogy to be drawn. There is a, a soil biome, just as there is a, a human gut microbiome. And there's no doubt that when you do that, and when you dump on fertilizers and things like that, you're depleting that soil biome. Yeah, beyond the biome, sort of the the thing that's, and obviously this is so complex. And so maybe, we, do you want to start with Iowa or do you want to start with California? Maybe let's start with California. Okay. So as you outline, obviously we're feeding the world among others, but essentially almost all of our food is coming out of California, despite the fact that we have a, an ongoing, perpetual, non-abating water crisis. So if you look at the produce aisle in a grocery store in the United States, whether you're actually in California or you're in the Midwest or down in Florida or up in New York, for most of the seasons of the year, including the growing season wherever you are, which is in most of the U.S., it's the sort of spring until the fall, even in that growing season, most of the vegetables and fruits in the supermarket, the conventional supermarket, are going to be from out of state. There's going to be some imports in there from places like Mexico and Chile, but the biggest provider by far is going to be California and just a few regions of California. We're talking about the Central Valley, the Salinas Valley, and the Imperial Valley. And they grow in those three places. You're talking about the great bulk of fruits and vegetables that Americans consume. And can you sort of outline, I know you talk about in the 70s how there was this, I think you call it an aquatic utopia outline, where there was this idea that whatever that there'd be enough water in the mountains to refill the aquifers and that in times of drought, we could draw on those, but that we obviously we've completely overdrawn them. And now we're actually, was it 2014 legislature that's now going into effect? So can you sort of explain where the water crunch is coming from? And then also the idea of this potential of extreme flooding? Sure. The region I focus on most in the book is the Central Valley. That's this valley that goes, you know, basically up the entire state from Southern California to the very northern border. And it's between the, the Sierra Nevada mountain range and the coastal mountain ranges. And it's a place that most people, when they visit this tourist mad California, they might see it between San Francisco and LA on a car trip, or maybe going out to the beautiful parks of Sierra Madre, uh, the Sierra Nevada. But so this is this region is probably the most intensively planted region in the United States, especially out of outside of the Corn Belt, which we'll talk about later. And and so it actually has incredible water resources. So the Sierra Nevada is this huge mountain range that every winter, let's say most winters, collects a rather large snowpack. So snow falls all winter and the snow melts. And it you know, runs down the mountains in the spring. And before sort of white settlers showed up in the, you know, well, the first the Spanish showed up, they didn't really do much to it. But when the sort of U.S. white settlers showed up is when things really changed. And before that, there were massive rivers running through it. There were huge expanses of it were wetlands, incredible biodiversity. Many Native American tribes lived there this incredibly biodiverse region. And so what U.S. agriculture has done, basically starting around 1850, is it's completely diverted these rivers. It's dammed them. It's, put the, it's diverted the water into aqueducts. 
And the great bulk of that water now goes to farming. And that is why this region is so productive. But it's also got really rich soil. So you can imagine these rivers bringing all this silt down off the mountains of years and years building up the soil. And so this industry rises up in the 19th century, but exploding in the 20th century. And it's just ravenous for more and more water, more and more control of the water. And these interests get the U.S. government to build out this incredible infrastructure for trapping that water. This happens in the middle of the 20th century. And it was actually a great thing because before that, when the water supply was erratic because they didn't have the aqueducts and dams and stuff to control the water, farmers, if they couldn't get water from the mountains, they would just tap a well and go underground for it into the aquifers. And they were tapping so much water from these aquifers that were incredibly voluminous stores of water, just from millennia of water dripping down from, from the mountains. They were taking it so, so much of it that the, that the land was sinking. And by sinking, I mean like a foot a year, sometimes even more than that. And that was causing all kinds of havoc. And so by building out this infrastructure, they basically put it into balance. And the, the aquatic utopia I talk about was this period when you would have lean years in the snowpack and farmers would draw more from underground and they would deplete the aquifer a little bit. And then the snowpack would return and the water would come gushing down. Farmers would be okay. A little bit would trickle down and replenish the aquifer a little bit. But farmers weren't really taking too much out of the aquifer and you went into balance. And so that takes place, let's say, from the 70s until around the turn of the 21st century. What happens then is the industry gets so ravenous, it builds out so much. It's more and more of the supermarket shelf, and it's taking more and more water, and that utopia begins to unravel, and they start taking more from underground and they're able to replenish and we go back to the battle days. And so you see this depletion of the aquifers and then the 2011 drought hits and basically all hell breaks loose after that. And it really exposed just how much water they were taking. Yeah, it was terrifying. I live in LA and I'm not a farmer, but it was clear that we were in deep doo-doo. I mean, I don't, <laughs> it's not yeah. the right word, but it was, it's, And obviously, when you're in the midst of something like that, and we're in weather chaos because of climate change anyway, it's, it is really scary. And I think that's when people became aware of the fact that we are, we have so many nut trees going that are so thirsty, that we're not even farming in a way that matches the natural capacity of the land, we're completely overburdening, where we're going for crops that we can't support. That's right. That's exactly right. And so the now there's a now that the there was regulation that was passed in 2014 to prevent or try to stall out the overdrawing of the aquifers and now that's setting up sort of another rethink or crisis or is that yeah. not gone into effect yet? It hasn't quite gone into effect yet. It's going to start going into effect pretty soon. But yeah, so what happened was things got so bad and basically this kind of what's the opposite of utopia, water hell takes over and we're back to sinking again. It's called subsidence. And parts of the San Joaquin Valley, not that far north of Los Angeles, start to sink. In some cases, you know, once again, a foot a year. 
And you can imagine the havoc that wreaks on roads and bridges. And then it also does something really bad to the aqueducts themselves. So these sort of canals that are carrying water to the farms, as the ground sinks under them, it sinks in an inconsistent pattern. And so it starts to snarl up. And you get this beautiful snowmelt that is the lifeblood of California, lifeblood of California farming, just spilling off and being wasted, just evaporating and not getting to farmers. And of course, when farmers lose that water, when good years come, they're just going to make up for it by going into the aquifer again. So you're in this really bad feedback cycle. And uh, Governor Brown and the legislature in 2014 realized that the old law of California, the old water law, which was if you own the land, you could drop a straw into it and suck as much damn water out as you wanted, that wasn't going to work. It was leading to literally an arms race. So we're neighbors, Elise, you and I. And and so I've got my 10,000 acres or whatever of almonds. And so I drop some really big wells and start sucking the water out. And of course, The aquifer doesn't stop at the property line. We share the aquifer, and now your well is going dry. And so you're like, damn it, I'm going to build an even bigger one. And so there's this well drilling frenzy. Neighbors are getting pissed off at each other. And so in 2014, they overturned basically the entire California history of basically laissez-faire water regulations on groundwater and said, okay, by 2040, these aquifers have to come into balance. In other words, you can't, over a certain amount of time, you can't draw more out than is being replenished. And so what that basically does is it's going to force the industry, and you know, we'll see how it plays out and how these interests try to get around it, but it's going to force them to live off of the snowpack with the groundwater, the aquifer water, just being a supplement every once in a while instead of just having as much as they want of it. And so we're going to see over the next 20 years, quite probably a drop in food production in the Central Valley for that reason. Yeah, but it seems like we need to make that adjustment at some point. And we'll get into some of the other things that you think are potential solves and ways to fix this. And you also, throughout the book, I think, set up this idea that the farmers, and certainly not the farm workers, are nobody's benefiting from this. It's a terrible business, more or less, except for the big, huge... I didn't even realize that there's big tractor, but there's even big tractor in farming. And I I should just say, in that statement is very true of the Corn Belt, the sort of Iowa end of things. It's a little different in California because... California farmers have managed, so if you're an Iowa farmer, you're growing corn and soybeans, everyone's growing the same thing. They're growing it in Brazil, they're growing it in other places. And so you've got really low prices and you're a price taker. California farmers have one advantage, and that is that almonds and pistachios, unlike Mm -hmm. corn and soybeans, don't have a whole lot of places they can grow. They've got to be in Mediterranean climates. And as a result, they're able to, they have a lot more pricing power, let's say, than than their um, Iowa peers. And so they are able to make fortunes off of pistachios and almonds in a way that no one's going to do on corn and soybeans. You know, there's this Mm -hmm. rising demand and we have an almond craze here for various reasons. People are eating more protein and it, it is actually a very healthy food, but 
in China, where there's no, there was no snacking culture to speak of uh, until very recently, the industry has really advertised almonds there and created an almond boom in China that basically guarantees rising demand that gives them some pricing power in the market. It doesn't always hold up. Sometimes there's a glut. We can talk about reasons why, like that the trade war with China did not help on that. But they're in a lot better position than their peers in Iowa. Mm-hmm. No, that totally makes sense. But the farm workers are not. The farm workers are, I th- was it Alpo? I'm not sure how to say that, the town that you where you visit and yes. explore. Yeah, exactly what's happening there in terms of how the workforce is living, how toxic their water supply is, and how they're surrounded by these trees that are consuming all the clean water in the land. Yes. So that is the town of Alpa in Tulare County. And I went there during the drought, I think in 2015, literally surrounded on all sides by pistachio groves. They can't even grow almonds there because the, the soil is so salty from so many years of irrigation that almonds aren't very salt tolerant. Pistachios are a little bit more salt tolerant. And so I was in the town of Alpa where the people in the town are literally drinking water that is laced with arsenic at mm-hmm. above the EPA limit. That's really because the aquifer has gotten so depleted, they're so close to the bottom of the aquifer that these naturally occurring elements like that are at very high concentrations. And so these farm, this farm worker community where people make maybe $20,000 a year per capita are spending huge amounts of money compared to, to their salaries to buy bottled water. And in 2015, uh, because of the drought, there were ordinances against them watering their lawns, watering their fruit trees that they helped, that helped them feed their families. And it was quite impressive to step out, go a mile out of town and be in the middle of a, a pistachio grove that they were putting in with these little pistachio starts, these little saplings going in as far as the eye can see in all directions and just wells everywhere, unregulated, being dug, in some cases already pumping water out of the ground uh, without any regulation. So if you're a farm worker, you can't water your lawn, you have to let your fruit tree die. But if you're a wealthy pistachio grower, it's a free for all. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And then the other thing that I thought was just staggering in terms of 
and again, I get that it's sort of one of those we're not good as a country at solving upstream problems and it's like just letting the calamity hit us and maybe hopefully we'll learn. But you, I didn't realize, I had no idea that California also has a history of massive flooding. And I know we'll, we'll get to Iowa in a second where that's, I think you write that there between 2003 and 2017, Central Iowa has endured no fewer than four hundred year storms, but mm. California is long overdue for a massive flood. And I would can only imagine the fact that the floor is sinking in the Central Valley, that it would be even more devastating than it was when it happened. Was it in the 19th century? It was. Yeah. It w- 1851, 1852, that winter. California has not been a state very long at this point. The, the gold rush is still going, starting to peter out a little bit. And the rain comes as as a Californian, basically your rain comes in the winter, rain and snow come in the winter, and it's pretty dry all summer. So the rain comes at a certain point in December and just doesn't stop for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it also, there's already some snow up in the mountains. It hits the snow and melts it, and it just keeps on raining and raining. And so what happened was basically the entire Central Valley. So you're talking about what is it take about an hour to get to the Central Valley from L.A. driving north. It's pretty far down into northern into Southern California, all the way up to the Oregon border or close to the Oregon border. You get this the entire Central Valley is under 10 feet of water, probably the, one of the worst natural disasters in the whole history of the United States. And the interesting thing about it is. It's been pretty much erased from the popular memory. I've talked to lifelong Californians who are really into the state's history that have never heard of it. But archaeologists and paleoclimatologists have looked into the fossil record. They've looked at tree rings and residues around streams that have been there forever. And what they found is that a storm of this caliber or even much bigger happens about every one to 200 years. And the last one happened around 150 years ago. And so, or 160 years ago, I should say. And so I'm doing my math wrong. It's 170 years. Uh, It was 1850 and that gets us all the way Mm -hmm. to 2000. And now we've got 20 more years. So it's 170 years. And the idea is that we're probably due for one of these coming up soon. And then when you look at climate change research, what the climate change scholars find is that the California snowpack, as we go forward, is going to be dwindling because of climate change. We're going to see fewer and fewer storms and more drought years like we saw from 2011 to 2016. But at the same time, we're going to see more powerful storms And there's a guy um, at UCLA named Dr. Swain who says that from his research that he's done, we're looking at one of these things happening in the next 20 years. And so consider the Central Valley at that time. It was pretty sparsely populated. We had already killed many uh, or driven away many of the Native American tribes. The Spanish didn't really settle it very much. It was used for grazing was the main thing that, that happened in it. The, all the original lakes and wetlands were also there, meaning that not uh, lakes, but also rivers and, and lakes and wetlands were also there. And there just weren't that many people there. Think about it now. 
Fresno, Bakersfield, Sacramento, these are very fast growing cities, some of the fastest growing cities in California. The, a lot of people are refugees from LA and San Francisco areas. Also, you've got a huge farm worker community that w- wasn't there before. And these people are all in incredible danger from it. And then think about the food system. This is the same exact place where all of this food that we eat comes from. And you're talking about at least one growing season essentially wiped out. And then think of all the pesticides and chemicals that weren't there before from all this farming. Think about the, all the incredible amounts of cow production, of cattle for beef, of ca- uh, cows for dairy, and all their manure. Think about the massive slurry of manure and pesticides and oil. Have you ever been to Bakersfield? It's, I, I figured out that Kern County has about twice the oil production of Louisiana. Wow. Um, sitting there in the San Joaquin Valley. And that's another thing that hanging over the food system in California is it isn't just a specter of drought that is coming for the Central Valley. It is also the specter of a massive biblical style flood. Yeah. With all of that stuff theoretically being moved all over the place and redeposited. Exactly. Yeah. With untold health impacts. Yeah. So let's shift because I know that what's happening in Iowa is also obviously there's major climate change participation in that in the sense that the water, the rain that's coming and clearly they have droughts as well, but it's not so much the water that is in crisis as it is the soil and the impact of those storms on the soil as it just erodes it even more. So can you give us sort of a baseline understanding of what's happening in the Corn Belt? Yeah. So I, I, what I go into in the book is how when you devote millions, tens of millions of acres of farmland in a place like Iowa, in a place like the Midwest that has this incredible cache of topsoil. The topsoil in the Midwest is one of the greatest stores of topsoil on earth. It developed over millennia of, it was a prairie with lots of wetlands as well that developed interactions between bison and people and other animals, basically Native Americans uh, playing a huge role, very high populations of, of Native Americans. And basically these interactions created a situation where you had this incredibly rich topsoil with incredible prairie grasses and wetlands driving this population of birds, apparently beyond imagination when you read accounts of white settlers who went and described it. And so you've gone from that to, to make a long story short, just two crops, corn and soybeans. And they're both planted in the spring and harvested in the fall. And in between those two times, so let's say October, November to the next, when you really get establishment of a crop, well into May, the ground is completely bare. And if anyone spent a winter or early you know, spring in the Midwest knows you get lots and lots of storms. And when you get storms hitting bare land, soil goes on the move. And so mm-hmm. I document in the book that basically because of this factor, this you know, leaving the ground bare, the Midwest is losing topsoil at something like the rate of 16 times as fast as it's naturally produced. And so just as California is basically 
taken this great water situation that the Central Valley has and completely overused it and abused it, the same thing is happening in California with the soil resource. And when soil goes on the move, it doesn't just, it's not just soil, it's all the damn chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides, fungicides, herbicides that farmers have. You have to apply these things if you're going to do monocropping, if you're going to do just huge stands of corn and soybeans. And all of that gets washed into the water. And just like people in the Central Valley basically don't have access to clean water, there's also a water pollution crisis like crazy in the Midwest. And that goes all the way, like that's the Gulf of Mexico, like this water full of these chemicals is moving throughout, it's moving to the ocean and we're getting those algal, those blooms, those, just the toxicity is spreading everywhere. That's exactly right. Yeah, the fertilizer doesn't just fertilize crops. When it goes in the move, it fertilizes algae. And so you get these really gross algae blooms that among the things they do is they suck all the oxygen out of water. So you get dead zones in the Gulf. And in freshwater places like Lake Erie, they feed a different kind of algae that produces human toxins. And sometimes in places like Toledo and Columbus and places like that, you get these warnings, don't drink the water, uh, it's toxic. And don't even wash your kids in it, don't take a shower in it, really bad stuff. Yeah. And this pressure to create, and it seems like, from what I understand from your book, that between the corn and the soybeans, that we're massively overproducing them to the, it is, we're exporting most of it, but not to countries where we have, where we're still seeing starvation and lack of food security. It's going to primarily develop nations. So the whole, like, we need GMOs, we need this massive production in order to feed the world is not carrying through. And farmers are being destroyed in the process. That's exactly right. I mean, the the overproduction is just eye-popping and ridiculous and almost comical. I saw literal mountains of corn in July when there's a huge crop of corn in all around it. And I love that you made that point about you talk to these guys, these sort of agrochemical executives or USDA people, and they'll say, oh, we're feeding the world. And if you look at exports numbers, it isn't going to, like, basically poor countries, low-income countries can't afford this stuff. What it's basically doing is it's going into the meat industries of countries with large middle classes. So it's not Mm -hmm. feeding poor people in China, it's feeding middle class people in China because they are eating more and more meat. Or it's going to Canada or places in Europe or Mexico, but once again, it's not poor Mexicans eating the fruits of this stuff. It's the wealthier people who can afford to eat a sort Mm -hmm. of U.S. style, essentially half pound of meat a day kind of diet. So it's not doing very much at all to end hunger, starvation. Right. Which is, I think, the way that people talk about GMOs as being, and I'm not slamming all GMOs, but in the context of this the big ag GMOs that are threaded with these with their own proprietary insecticides and fungicides, like they're trying to ride this wave of being good for people on the planet, which is clearly not happening. I love to just the basic math. I think it was Jonathan Foley where he was talking about 
that the average Iowa, I'm reading to you from your book, if you don't mind, the average Iowa cornfield has the potential to deliver more than 15 million calories per acre each year, which is enough to sustain 14 people per acre with a 3,000 calorie per day diet if we ate that corn ourselves. But with the current allocation of corn to ethanol and animal production, we end up with an estimated 3 million calories of food per acre, enough to sustain only three people per acre. This is lower than the average delivery of food calories from farms in Bangladesh, Egypt, and Vietnam. Yeah, it's stunning. So instead of just directly eating what's grown, we basically run it through the body of an animal and eat that animal and incredible amounts of calories are wasted in the process. And we can talk about the just massive amount of waste, including literal manure and all the pollution that comes from that uh, is also part of it. Let's talk about, as you, the question you ask, where does all the hog shit go? So theoretically, and again, please correct me, but in the old, in historically, the land is best served when it is, and manure is obviously a tremendous fertilizer as long as it's not overloading the ground and that there are these virtuous cycles of crop diversity that then feeds the earth along with animal waste, et cetera. And you get into this like really rich soil territory. But what's happening in places like Iowa, which is also producing the ton of hog herds, right? Tons of chickens, tons of cows, is that they're all they're not distributed across farms the way that they used to be, where that manure would go back into the soil in a sensible way, in a in a reasonable way. They're all on farms. So you have this was wild. All told, Iowa's hog herd delivers as much waste as 83.7 million humans. So in fecal terms, there are 28 hogs for every human Iowa resident. And then once you get into including cows, etc. It is 55 fecal equivalents to every person in Iowa in terms of density. Yeah, it's crazy. That is insane. And so where does that waste go? So what they do with it is all those animals are, even in Iowa, they're concentrated in a few parts of the state. And so basically what they do is they overapply it to the ground. Uh, they, they apply too much of it. They apply more then can be taken up by the land. And so it goes on the move. It goes on the move all year round, but it goes on the move in a really bad way during these cataclysmic winter and spring storms along with soil. But it just, it basically just leaches out and it's leaching out nitrogen and phosphorus, big parts of manure. So it makes them valuable fertilizer. And that causes the algae blooms you're just talking about. It's also full of anti antibiotic-resistant bacteria that can cause disease because they tend to use a lot of antibiotics in these uh, facilities. I should also say that nitrogen is a terrible thing to have in your water. If you have it at levels that are common throughout the Midwest, it, it basically causes cancer and other maladies. It can cause blue baby syndrome. If you mm. the baby gets too much of it, basically it starves starves you of, of oxygen. Adults can handle a little bit of that, but a, a baby will literally turn blue. So basically what happens is it just goes into creeks and streams and rivers and ultimately down to the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. And meanwhile, you, so 60% of the state's farms 
since the dawn of the industrial culture in the 40s have evaporated, right? All these farmers are losing their farms because of the economic pressure of producing, overproducing these crops where there's the price is plummeting and they're at the mercy of big ag, massive industries that own 60% of the global pesticide trade and 60% of the global seed market. Stunning. But... There's some bright spots, right? So there are some farmers that you profile that are taking things back into their own hands, rehabilitating their soil, and showing what's possible with greater yields that's more drought resistant, that's certainly better for the planet. So can you take us through the like Brandt, farmers like that who are going regenerative, not necessarily purely organic, but just completely focused on soil health, soil retention, and I guess economic viability ultimately. Yeah, the economics are tough and I'll explain why, but basically what someone like David Brandt is a farmer in central Iowa, what he's doing is, you know, basically at the start of the conversation, I was just talking about how we've gone from complex systems to really simple systems where, you know, you you do corn and soybeans, that's all you grow. And then instead of having hogs or cows in the pasture rotating through after the crops are harvested, that are you know literally in a box. They're literally in a. The hogs are in a giant facility. The cows are in a feedlot, um, never seeing after their calves, never seeing grass again. What Brand is doing is he's simply adding complexity to the system. He never lets his ground go bare. And so what he does is when he's harvested his cash crops in the fall, he plants this incredibly biodiverse mix of cover crops. He'll do 12 or 13 species. He'll do grasses like rye that uh, suck up a lot of carbon and put a lot of carbon in the soil. He'll do legumes like vetch that grab nitrogen from the air and put it in the soil. So he doesn't, basically doesn't have to fertilize. He'll do radishes that will plunge a root deep into the soil and create air pockets. And he'll leave the radish in, and as it rots, it's adding nutrients to the soil. So he's created this kind of ballet of biodiversity in his field in the off-season. And what it's done is it's basically eliminated the need for him to use herbicides because he just literally rolls something over, like a a crimper attached to his uh, tractor, and that kills the cover crop in the spring, and then he drills his seeds straight into it. Only has to, only uses pesticides when he has to, or herbicides when he has to, which is very rarely. Basically, what he's doing is, and so just imagine those cover. You got this mat of cover crops. It's blocking weeds from getting a foothold. So it basically eliminates weeds, and as it rots, it's just adding organic matter to the soil. It's building it up. It's making it better at retaining water. It's making it better at staying in place. When there's a giant storm, you go to his neighbor's bare field and you'll see these gashes in the soil where soil has just washed away. And his is just sitting there. It's under these, the roots of the cover crops. And the stuff ab- above ground is buffering the rain from hitting it really hard. And the roots are holding it in. And so he's just got this incredible system that builds up lots of soil and he does corn, soybeans, and wheat. Almost no one else does a third crop. And that has all kinds of benefits too. But the problem is that he is in the same commodity market 
as his neighbors are. So when corn goes down to 250 a bushel, imagine that a bushel of corn is 66 pounds and it can get as low as $2 for 66 pounds of corn. He's basically getting the same price. He doesn't want to go organic for his, you know, various own reasons. And some of his neighbors are, are learning from him. But I think that it's really important to note that these people aren't crazy. They're not doing this thing to their soil because they're stupid. It's because there are policies in place that these giant companies that we're talking about that control the tractor market and the seed market and the pesticide market and buy all the grain and own all the slaughterhouses that process the animals. These companies keep this system in place where farmers get insurance, they get crop, you know, subsidized crop insurance, they get subsidies. And so there's very little incentive for them to try something new. They see right. him over there, they're chilling out after th- their harvest is in, counting what little money they made on, on their crop. And David Brand is going crazy getting his cover crops in. And they're like, why would I want to do that when I got my government payments coming? A rational decision, but it's what keeps this system in place. And the big three, and obviously now Monsanto is owned by Bayer, which is a German company, and then Syngenta is Chinese, and then Corteva is Dow and DuPont in combination, right? Rebranded. I love how they just, everyone just keeps rebranding in order to try to escape their past. Exactly. But... They and they're meanwhile, I thought this was so chilling that the advent of precision agriculture and big data in farming and that was it one of the Monsanto executives, I guess, before it became Bear, who said that they want to be the Amazon of farmers. Essentially, they want to control everything. Yeah, it's a monopolistic vision that he was not at all shy about talking about in public. Yeah, stunning. And so you, what you put forth, and I know you, like me, are potentially hopeful about a concept like a Green New Deal, depending on, I guess, what happens in November, but this idea to really reimagine all sectors and create new systems around equity and also the environment and environmental responsibility and supporting family farming, sustainable farming, soil health, all of those things. And it seems like what you also are proposing is that consumers want access to good, high quality food locally. The farmers markets have grown dramatically, things like CSAs, and that if we could readjust the way that thing that we could reallocate farmland to vegetables and fruits so it's not just in California and that that other parts of the country would be used for farming we might get to a more sustainable place quite quickly yeah that's basically right i mean getting from from where we are to that new policy regime is where the the real trick is going to lie. But I, I do get some strange hope from the this COVID-19 just meltdown that we're in. What is the word? It's so much exposed the cracks in so many of our systems, in our healthcare system, in our disaster readiness system. If we treat we treat the disaster of a flood in California with the same sort of incompetence that we're reacting to the COVID disaster. It's pretty chilling. So I think it's exposing a lot of rot in our policy structures. And so I think that if we get a a progressive 
turn in the November election and we get some policymakers who want to want to respond to the COVID crisis, let's say, by improving public health, by improving healthcare. I think a lot of sectors of society that are dysfunctional are also going to be up for change. And mm-hmm. we had two politicians running in the Democratic side in, in 2020 that didn't make it, but Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were both essentially pushing agriculture policies that are the most radical thing we've seen, with the exception of Jesse Jackson, who also had, in the 80s, he had some very progressive agriculture ideas. And I feel like there is space open on a policy level in that regard. And also this COVID disaster, I think, is opening space for rethinking a lot of systems. And I think agriculture, I I get every once in a while, I'm a cynical journalist, but uh, a little bit of hope seeps in, and I'm just like, what's that? But I do think that it's it's real. Yeah. And it seems like it's going to be essential. We didn't really talk about this, but but the carbon that we're releasing by tilling the land the way that we do in Iowa, by the fact that it's bare, by the fact that it's not retaining anything, is also significant. I think one of the scientists that you speak to suggests that if all farmers in the Corn Belt adapt, adopted Brant-style agriculture, which is to plant cover crops and enrich the soil and really focus on that as one of the primary factors in the way that they think about their land, that it would suck down 20 times more carbon than they currently do, which is equivalent to nearly 10% of the U.S. car fleet off the road, which is significant. Yeah. And I think that you could even get those numbers up higher if you did other... Brandt's got a great system, but that was your goal. So Brandt is not going out there saying, I want to suck carbon up because uh, no one's paying him to. Basically, his thing is, I want to keep my soil healthy and grow my crops. But if someone said, hey, we're going to pay you based on how much carbon, instead of giving you a subsidy like we do now just for producing a bunch of corn and soybeans... We're going to make it so that your subsidy level goes up and down with the amount of carbon you have in your soil. I think we'll see lots of innovations. I've been even hearing about agroforestry in the Midwest, where you could you could actually plant basically nut trees, not on a California insane scale, but you could work nut trees into farms that would produce a lot of food and produce a lot of value for the farmer but would also sequester even more carbon. And so your cropland would be in a kind of brant style system, and then you have other things going on that suck even more carbon. And actually bringing the Midwest is a really good place, the Corn Belt is a really good place to let cows graze on land if managed properly, I should emphasize. There is even more carbon carbon sequestration potential if you incorporate cattle into the land in a way that hasn't been done in a couple of generations. So it seems like if we can get no one, I would, who knows, I cannot certainly speak for everyone, but it seems like most people want access to good, clean food. They don't, nobody wants this sort of corn soybean duopoly, right? Like even, I think you say over 4,000 school districts had farm to school programs trying to get fresher food to kids typically who are low income and don't have access to good clean food. So it feels like the consumer appetite is there to the point of feeling like the, the 
that consumers are exceptionally stressed and frustrated about what's happening. Do you think that's all that it will take is a new administration to prioritize this? Like it feels like sentiment is there. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I think that public public desire for something different is there. I think that you can't pull the food system out of society. And as you well know, our society has got a lot of economic inequality. It's got a lot of really high levels of poverty and low-income people. That COVID is the COVID crisis is exacerbating in dramatic fashion. Not everyone can afford the really nice food that you can get at a farmer's market. But I, I think that also people would like to be able to afford it. So I think that creating a more equal economy is also a big part of it. And I do have a hobby horse that I like to ride about how important the National School Lunch Program is. Because like right now, even with the Michelle Obama reforms and public school lunches that were basically nullified by the Trump administration, the Trump administration at least gave districts the, the permission to backslide. And a lot of them took it. Basically, her reform was a little bit less sugar, a little bit less sort of hydrogenated fat, a little bit more access to fruit and vegetables. But it didn't really change the budget that the schools have. Um, and if you think about it, our schools, when you go to school, you're getting society's idea of how things should be. You want your teacher to be polite and courteous because we want to have a polite and courteous society. So you model that. The lunchroom models this industrial crap. It teaches, hey, this is an acceptable way to eat. And if we want to bring a public value of that other countries have, places like France and Japan, of eating as something beautiful and nice and something we pay attention to and we, we fuss over our ingredients we could we need to make the cafeterias do that and so that mm-hmm. would be a lot more budget for cafeterias it would mean longer lunch hours i've been just reading about how lunch hours are down to 21 minutes or even less so it's like this sort of cattle call get through there and wolf down your industrial lunch as fast as possible all that needs to change and i think that's part of the change that we need to see Thanks for listening to my conversation with Tom Philpot. I hope you're feeling as inspired as I am. And if you haven't already, pick up a copy of Tom's book, Perilous Bounty. It's out now. You can also read more about his work at tomphilpot.net. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime... You can check out goop.com slash the podcast.